my all in all. No matter what we're going through, no matter what this world throws at us, sin's curse has lost its grip on us because of what you have done. We are yours and you are ours. Nothing can pluck us from your hand because here in the power of Christ we stand. In Jesus' name. So today we're going to continue our sermon series on the one-hit wonders of the Bible. And by that I mean the books of the Bible that consist of one and only one chapter. But that, that one chapter, that one-hit wonder, was so good, it was so important, it was so full of significance that even that one single solitary chapter was given a title and included among the 66 books in the Bible. So far, we've looked at the one-chapter prophecy written by Obadiah. And then last week, we looked at the one-chapter letter written by Paul to Philemon. And now we come to the first of two one-chapter letters written by the Apostle Paul, known simply as 2nd and 3rd John. Now, when I say 2nd and 3rd John, that implies that there is a First John. The first of the three letters written by John, known as First John, is also in the Bible, but, but that book is substantially longer than Second and Third John. So John wrote more than just these three books. He also wrote one of the four biographies of Jesus, known as the Gospel of John, and he wrote the last book of the Bible, known as the book of Revelation. In fact, John is second only to the Apostle Paul in terms of having the most material in the New Testament. John is the first cousin of Jesus. His mother is the sister of Mary, Jesus' mother, and, and he was one of the twelve apostles. John is, is called the man who Jesus loved because while Jesus was here on earth, John was his closest, his most intimate friend. So much so that while Jesus was dying on the cross, he looked down to John and asked John to take care of his mother. These three letters written by John were written to tackle problems in the church, either false teachings that had taken root within the church or, or maybe relational breakdowns that had taken place within the community of the church. They were not called 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John by John himself. That's just kind of how we referred to them over time. Perhaps a better title would have been to gather them all under one heading and, and call them the three letters of John to the various people and churches that he pastored. Today, our focus is on the second of those three letters, and it's just 13 verses long. So let, I'm actually going to read the entire book in its entirety, and then we'll kind of walk back through it a little bit by bit. So let's read the entire book. The elder, to the lady chosen by God and to her children, whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father, 
and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, will be with us in truth and love. It has given me great joy to, to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as the Father commanded us. And now, dear lady, I am not writing you a new command, but one we have had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. I say this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch out that you do not lose what you have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take them into your house or welcome them. Anyone who welcomes them shares in their wicked work. I have much to write to you, but I do not want to use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to visit you and talk with you face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your sister who is chosen by God send their greetings. So there you have it, the entirety of John's second letter. But there's a lot there. It's only 13 verses, but, but there's a lot there. And, and surprisingly, what it holds for us is even more relevant than you might imagine. The letter begins with a greeting like most letters do, but this one is, is kind of strange. It's different than what we usually see. In fact, let me read it to you again. The elder, to the lady chosen by God and her children. See, first, John introduces himself as the elder. See, that, that term elder can be used interchangeably with the terms bishop or pastor. So whenever you see that word in the elder in the Bible, you don't necessarily have to think about someone who's old. It could just be, you can think of pastor. So John, as the pastor, is writing, and, and this is where the language gets a little strange, to the chosen lady. Now at first glance, you, you might think, well, well, he's writing to a specific person. A chosen lady and to her children but when we look at that it's not just a, por a personal correspondence it's not it's a it's a letter to a church and we know this because John starts off so formally and then uses plural language throughout the letter and also talks about things that would only be relevant to a church so then the question is, why did he start off writing it as if he was writing to a specific woman and to her children? Well, it was code. It was code in case the letter got intercepted by the wrong people. You see, during the time when John wrote this letter, the church was under persecution. To avoid letters like this being found and then used to persecute a group of Christians, they would often disguise the letters to a church as letters to a person. Because often it was illegal to meet as a corporate 
church in that time. So why a woman? Was that just arbitrary? Did you just have to choose either a man or a woman and just choose a woman? Well, in the New Testament, the church is often described as the bride of Christ. The female imagery of the church was common in other ways, so John carefully addresses the church as the chosen lady. And then the members of that church would be her children. So his reference at the end to her children of another place for members of another church. And the word, the use of the word chosen here only adds to this. See, it was a, a common term among Christians that they would speak of being chosen in Christ. We would come to Christ of our own free will, and God wishes that every single one of us would become part of his family. But he has chosen to do it through Jesus, and therefore to those who come to Christ are termed the chosen, because they have cooperated with God's means of choosing how people will be saved. Christ is the chosen means of our salvation. And people become a part of, his, of that chosenness through their response to him. So as John writes as a pastor to the elder, to the, to the chosen lady, to the church, and then he adds these words, whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace from God, the Father, and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, will be with us in truth and love. See, John, even in the beginning of this greeting, goes out of his way to link love with truth, and truth with love. Their shared love is based on their shared truth. Even the grace and mercy and peace of God the Father and Jesus the Son is with them because of this pairing together of truth and love. Now, most of us get the idea of love, but the idea of truth is often harder for us. See, truth is an important idea, not only to John, but also throughout the entire Bible. And it's worth understanding what's meant by it. The most basic idea of truth is that which corresponds to reality. If I were to say it's raining outside, I don't actually know whether it is or not, but if I were to say it's raining outside and you go and look and it's not, well, then you know whether that's truth or false. It's either raining or it's not. See, that's the idea of truth. Not, that you, that, not what you think might be true, or what you may want to be true, but what actually is objectively true. Truth is something that stands outside of us. It exists. It simply is true. God is truth. He is the source of all truth. Truth doesn't come from us. It isn't made up on our own, not determined by us, but Truth comes to us. That's why we speak of the Bible as God's revelation. It's God revealing himself and truth about himself. 
that, that couldn't be known otherwise. And if we're honest, that's a radical idea. Truth is not something that we create. It's something that we discover. It's not what, what we choose to believe is truth. It's not a 51% majority vote or what ideologies may embrace as truth. Truth simply is. Something corresponds with reality, or it doesn't. Something corresponds with the revealed truth of God, or it doesn't. It's not a guessing game. Truth simply is. Something like sincerity has nothing to do with whether or not something is real. Now, I can sincerely believe that I get up, if I get up in the middle of the night with a headache and I go to the medicine cabinet and take out what I think is Tylenol, if instead, if what I take out is poison, it doesn't matter whether I sincerely believed it was Tylenol. I'm still going to be dead. See, during World War II, Hitler sincerely believed that the slaughter of six million Jews was justified. But he was sincerely wrong. Sincerity matters, but it cannot be all that matters. Because sincerity alone has nothing to do with reality. The ideas of truth is the correspondence between our ideas and our perceptions and reality. What is true is that which actually is. If you believe that that kind of objective truth doesn't exist, or even if it does, if you think it doesn't really matter, well then, I'm going to argue that, that you lack intellectual integrity. And, and let me tell you why. Even a skeptic, as noteworthy as Sigmund Freud, who wanted nothing, had, had nothing but disdain for Christianity, once wrote this. If it were really a matter of indifference, what we believe, then we might at just as well build our bridges out of cardboard instead of stone. Truth matters. So with that in mind, let's go back to what John is saying. Truth, real, objective truth that corresponds with reality and has been revealed by God cannot be separated from the love we are called to express to others. You cannot have love without truth. And you cannot have truth without love. Which means whatever your expression of love may hold, whatever you may, whatever you feel it may be leading you to do, it cannot be at the expense of truth. No application of love, if it's truly love, can be at the expense of truth. If you feel love is calling you to abandon truth, then you are misunderstanding the proper application and the demonstration of love. John is laying all of this out right here at the beginning. He's writing this letter knowing that that is exactly what's going on, what's happening in the church, that they had been sacrificing and they had been compromising truth in the name of love, which is why he then writes these words. It has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth, just 
as the Father commanded you. And, and now, dear lady, I'm not writing you a new command, but one we have had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk in obedience to, the, to his command. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. There you have it. John is sitting here saying, some of you have been getting this love and truth dynamic right, but some of you haven't. He's saying, let me spell it out for you. You know that you're to love one another. That hasn't changed. But this is what love entails, obedience to the truth, embracing the truth. See, some people were, were using the command to love, as a means to do away with the truth, to do away with any sense of right and wrong, to do away with any sense of doctrine or authority, to, to, in order that they were in the name of love, they were abandoning truth. And John is saying, no, love is based on truth. When you divorce truth from love, you don't have love to begin with. This is what people often get wrong about something like the idea of grace. To get grace right, it's not just about grace. When we think about grace, we, we tend to think about love and forgiveness and acceptance, and, and as well we should, that's what grace holds. But grace isn't just about grace. It's always part of a package. And that package is grace and truth. Grace and truth go together. They are intertwined. You can take truth. If you take away truth, you don't have grace anymore. All you have is a cheap, sentimental, lifeless, powerless idea that, that just means accept anyone and affirm whatever, anything that anyone wants to espouse. But you'll never find that in the Bible. No one was more loving. No one was more grace-giving than Jesus. No one was more accepting than Jesus. But you'll never find Jesus once affirming the lifestyle that goes against the truth. Grace and truth always went together for Jesus. Now there were those, these were among some of the opening lines of John's biography about Jesus. He said, Jesus came full of grace and truth. Grace is accepting a relationship. Truth is what's real, and it describes how things really are. Truth without grace is just judgment. Grace without truth is merely deception. John Stott once put it this way. He said, our love grows soft if it is not strengthened by truth. And our truth grows hard if it is not softened by love. They have to go together. But that wasn't all that John needed to make clear to this church he's writing to. He needed to apply this love and truth dynamic to something very specific in the church. And it was why he wrote the letter, even though he was planning to visit them soon. But what he needed to warn them about couldn't wait. 
before we take a closer look at his words, let's, let's look a little bit at the background. See, it was common in that day for teachers, evangelists, and pastors to travel from town to town, village to village, church to church. That's how the message of the Christian faith and the expansion of the church was taking place. It was a traveling ministry. And it was common, even necessary, for them to stay in the home of believers. Not every town had a, had a Motel 6 that left the light on, and even if they did, no Christian leader would want to stay there because these inns in many towns and villages had a bad reputation of being just a glorified brothel. So as part of the culture in the early Christian church, in the name of love and hospitality, to provide housing and food to traveling teachers and pastors. And then during their stay, they would serve the church through their teaching. See, John is concerned about those people who would come to town seeking to be officially received as, as a Christian teacher or minister to be given room and board and then a platform to teach and to influence the church. But some of these people weren't authentic Christians. They weren't teaching what was true. They were spreading lies and false doctrines and teaching things that were against what Jesus taught. So under this guise of love, they were allowing an attack on truth which would lead to the abandonment of truth within the church. And that's what John is wanting to address. And he says this, I say this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch out that you do not lose what we have worked for but that you may be rewarded fully. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take them into your house and, or welcome them. Anyone who welcomes them shares in their wicked work. Now, that's pretty strong language, but it needed to be strong language. False teachers had come to them. False teachers, they were getting housed and fed and were allowed to get up and then be platformed and to influence the church. They were teaching heresy. Specifically, they were teaching that Jesus was not who Jesus said he was, which was God himself in human form, fully God and fully man. John certainly didn't want that spreading throughout the church. It was so serious that he, in fact, calls them antichrists. Now, by that, he doesn't mean the antichrist, spoken of in the book of Revelation. See, the term antichrist simply means anything against Christ, against who he was, against what he did. Things like denying the divinity of Jesus, denying the humanity of Jesus. Those are antichrist doctrines. And then to drive this message home, John says that if you get deceived by these people, you can lose what you've worked for. 
Now, he's not talking about salvation. I don't think that's the idea here. What he's talking about is you can lose the ministry. You can lose the church, which is why he then gives this warning. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take them into your house or welcome them. Anyone who welcomes them shares in their wicked work. Here, John draws a line. He draws the line of truth that, that love cannot cross. Love cannot be allowed to let that which would undermine truth take hold, to be platformed, to be given an entry. John is talking about whether they, as Christians, should interact with, with he's not talking about whether we should interact with people who aren't Christians. I mean, after all, that's all John really did for three years with Jesus. And we are called to, to do the same. We're called to be contagious Christians, to talk about our faith, to invite people to come and to see, to come and explore, We're to our share our faith and our stories with others. But, but there is a major difference between being an influencer and being influenced. You see, in the name of love and hospitality, they were taking these false teachers into their homes and letting them spread lies. This, this is not what love does. Love and truth go hand in hand. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, so what does this have to do with us today? Well, more than you might think. You see, this is still happening. The church has to be protected. We are loving and we're to be truth upholding. It's one of the reasons why we have church membership. I mean, the first and most obvious reason is because it's biblical. But, but you, you could, that's why you could have even the letter John written to a particular church that's clear and defined group. But there's another reason for church membership. It's in that it protects the church from being infiltrated by false doctrine. By another, but another reason is that we are to invite people here. We, we have people, maybe it's, maybe it's you that, that's just exploring, maybe you haven't accepted Jesus into your life, and we love that this is a place where you can come, and you're welcome, and you're, feel, you're made to feel welcome here. But we also want to, to protect what those people are exploring. Let me talk for a second about the internet. See, false, see, we don't have to worry so much about people coming here and spreading false doctrine. False doctrine is all over the internet. We don't have to wait for them to come to us. Often, we go to them. We watch things that we shouldn't watch. We think it might be good, but they're actually spreading false doctrine online. So, Stay away from those things. Now you may say, well, how do I know if it's false doctrine? How do I know if it's truth or false? Well, let me tell you. Almost every cult, almost every heresy, almost every false teaching is some form of an anti-Christ message. Meaning, something against Christ, something against or undermining or challenging who Jesus said he was and what he said he had come to do. And who he said he was was God the Son, the second person of the Trinity in human form, fully God, fully man, who came to bring us 
the gospel, which was that while we were still dead in our sins, we could be forgiven. We could be brought back to life, restored to a relationship with him. We could be saved because God loves us that much. And that while we couldn't save ourselves, we could be saved through him. He who knew no sin would lay down his life for our sins. He would take the penalty of our sins upon himself. That through his death and then his resurrection, we too could experience a new life. We could accept his gift of dying in our place. We could receive the forgiveness of our sins and we could look forward to our own resurrection to come. If you read anything contrary to that, anything antagonistic to that, anything that subtracts from that or adds to that, then John would say, you have an antichrist message. For some of you, this may feel a bit uncomfortable. It sounds a little intolerant of other, others' ideas, of others' expressions. And, well, that's because it is. And I would argue that that's not a bad thing. Because of all we said about truth earlier, there is truth, there is falsehood, and truth matters. Truth is out there. Somebody, you, some people say, well, somebody's right, somebody's wrong, or maybe even everybody's wrong, but what we can't say is that everyone is right. Let's talk a little bit this morning about tolerance. See, there are three types of tolerance. The first is legal tolerance. And if you're an American, this is your basic First Amendment right to believe what you want to believe. There's nothing in what Jesus put forward or that the Bible would teach or that I would even maintain that would war against an idea of legal tolerance. In fact, the Bible is a great advocate for legal tolerance. The second type of tolerance is social tolerance. This is accepting someone else as a fellow human being, regardless of what they believe interacting with them in love and exhibiting a relational openness to them as fellow human beings. Again, there's nothing in the Christian faith that would stand against that either. If Jesus stood for anything, it was open, loving acceptance of others as people who mattered to God. Nothing I'm saying or John is writing about has anything to do with legal or social tolerance. But there is a third kind of tolerance, and that is what John is talking about. And that is intellectual tolerance. This is accepting any and every idea as being equally valid, being equally good, right, and true. And that's where Christianity draws the line. It's where John drew the line. It's where I would draw the line. See, imagine if I were sitting on an airplane and a woman sits down next to me with a large tattoo on her shoulder that says, F the world. Now, I wouldn't tell you the exact word it said, but you get the idea. Then, but I would support her right to have a tattoo. I may not like it, but I would support a person's right to have a tattoo. 
I'd be privileged to be in a relationship with her as a friend. I would but I absolutely don't agree with what she has inscribed on her body as a life philosophy. I wouldn't invite her to, hear, to have her give a message about that life philosophy, to spread that idea. I wouldn't send anyone to her website to further instruction on that idea. See, the point is that I don't believe that everyone and everything is equally right and equally valid. There is a right, there is a wrong, there is a good, there is a bad, there is a true, and there is a false. There really is truth and falsehood, and the truth really does matter. So there you have the second letter of John in the New Testament, a letter that reminds us to love boldly, but never at the expense of truth. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for this message that John has given us. Thank you for, for helping us to, to accept the idea that love and truth have to go together. They are always intertwined. They are always together. We can't have one without the other. So many people lean towards one or the other, and it is not your idea there. Heavenly Father, you have saved us. You made that sacrifice so that we can come to you. We are so much better because of it. And we praise you for all that you did, and we, and we ask for strength to uphold your standards, to be the type of Christians that you have called us to be, loving, truth-upholding Christians. Thank you for being the defender of our heart. In Jesus' name, amen.